What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange, everyone. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. Inflation soaring to the highest level in 40 years and the European Central Bank more hawkish than expected this morning. Stocks are falling on the news as investors reposition ahead of our Fed. How is that inflation impacting businesses? We'll ask the CEO of Portillo's. Food and labor costs especially are soaring. How much more are customers willing to pay up? And with gasoline prices jumping to new records, EVs are looking more attractive if you can get one and if you're willing to pay up. We'll get into all of that. Plus, we begin with some of the stocks giving back yesterday's big rally. Dominic Chu's over there with the numbers. Okay, so it's red today and it's a reversal, but we haven't given back all of them. In fact, not even close. It's a fraction of what we kind of got in yesterday's session overall. So if you see the Dow Industrials down nearly 400 points, about one and a quarter percent declines right here. 32,891 the last trade there. 4218 is the level for the S&P 500, off nearly one and a half percent here. 59 handles or points. The Nasdaq Composite 12,978, so now below 13,000 again. 2% losses there. So the real undersized moves here in the, the NASDAQ composite, the real underperformer in the trade so far. Now, that technology growth NASDAQ trade could be driven in part, because there's a lot of narratives out there, by the interest rate picture. Because believe it or not, we're back up to 2%. In fact, north of it for the 10-year U.S. Treasury note yield, 2.02% the last trade there. Now, if you remember, it's a kind of about 206 was the high for this kind of recent round here, and about 168 was the low. So again, tilting towards the high end of that range, people are again getting rid of some of the safety of U.S. government bonds, forcing prices lower, yields are going higher. So we'll see how long that lasts, given the issues that we have with the war in Ukraine and Russia. And then the stock of the day has to be Amazon because bucking the overall trend. And there's a very specific narrative that goes along with this. At this point, we all know four and a half percent upside for Amazon, driven in large part because of a $10 billion share buyback program, but maybe even more so for the fact that this company is going to split 20 for one. So at, you know, the quick and dirty math, $2,900 and change. So we're talking about $145 on a post split basis, hypothetically, when it happens, that is helping to drive some of that big Amazon trade. And by the way, for many of the recent large cap tech companies that have split the near to medium term performance after that has been generally to the upside, including for names like Apple and Tesla as well. So Tesla, uh, Kelly, we'll see if that Amazon thesis plays out like we think it will here with the previous examples. Back over to you. Now who's going into the Dow, Dom? We've got some contenders. we got a couple of big tech splits. The Tesla one you mentioned, even NVIDIA, right? Yeah, and let's not forget Alphabet is probably in that mix now as well. And, and, and so, you know, you, you never know. But exactly. I, I, I'm trying to figure out whether or not any of those stuff, who would you kick out, I guess, is the big question. <laughs> well, I can think of a few contenders. Dom, thank you. you we'll leave it. it there for now, Dom Chu. Let's take a quick look at what just drove the CPI this morning to a 40-year high of 7.9%. Used vehicles up 41%, energy up 25%, food up almost 8%. How many of these factors are transitory and which ones are not? Joining me now, Michael Schumacher is head of macro strategy at Wells Fargo and John Augustine is chief investment officer at Huntington Private Bank. 
Welcome to you both. John, even uh, Chair Powell doesn't really use the term transitory anymore. But obviously, some of those big contributors, especially on used car prices, may moderate somewhat. Other factors are just starting to pick up now, though. No, you're right, Kelly, and good afternoon. Uh, this report was actually, by, by the way, before a lot of the commodity increase that we saw out of the Russia invasion. So what's actually going to be more interesting is on Monday, that producer price index. So we're probably going to see a higher inflation print before it moves lower. That's our view. What does it mean for your investing strategy? We're sticking with our inflation hedges. So last year, middle of the year, we started with real estate, small caps, then in the bond portfolios, TIPS, those Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. What we saw last year was gold. We had gold at one time. It just didn't work. So we so exited that position. Real estate, small caps. Did you mention a third and you said you got out of gold, but are you getting back in now? Not getting back in. The third was in our bond portfolios. We put tips in there. Tips. So Treasury inflation protected. Absolutely. Um, all right. So you're already kind of positioning for this kind of environment. Michael Schumacher, you know, the CPI report, the way the bond market usually reacts better than anyone. Ten year back over two percent. But we're off the highs of the session, I believe. Yeah, it's interesting, Kelly. You've got so many crosswinds now with Ukraine, inflation, et cetera. The Fed right around the corner so. Difficult to pin the move on any one particular factor, but we do think the trend for the next few months is up in yields at this point. Okay, trend up in yields. I think everyone could get on board with that, Michael. But is the real story that today basically, you know, puts more weight into the inflation camp than into the slowing growth camp? Look what the ECB just decided. What do you think that significance is? Yeah, that was interesting, actually. It's a good point. The ECB was comparatively hawkish. You'd think, well, hey, you've got a shooting war just outside the Eurozone's borders, surely the ECB is going to be dovish, and it really wasn't. So it talked about any bond purchases pretty soon, which is not what the market expected. I think the inflation report for the U.S. today just underscores the idea that inflation's here to stay for quite some time. It's not going away anytime soon. Yes, you're going to see additional pressure upward, especially this month from the surge in commodity prices. It makes the Fed's job that much tougher, but it really does put the onus squarely on inflation and much less on growth. All right. And actually, on that note, we just had a bond auction of 30 years. If you guys hold right where you are, let's bring in Rick Santelli. Rick, uh, bonds are selling off all day today. How would the demand go? Well, I'll tell you what, they're not going to be selling off from this moment forward, at least maybe for the rest of this session, because we had a stellar 30-year bond auction, 20 billion, 29-year, 11-month, 30-year bonds. But we're reopening an issue from last month. And the internals were just terrific. 2.375 was the yield at the Dutch auction. The one issue, Mark, was trading a couple of basis points higher. Okay, so lower yield, higher price. Spectacular pricing. The metrics outside of direct bidding, which was just a little light, I would have given it an A plus if the direct bidders were a bit higher. But indirects, one of your favorite categories, Kelly, foreign buyers, uh, that was at 71.5, the best since July of 2020. All the metrics were good. The one that really jumps out, I like to call it the buffet indicator. How much do dealers take after investors are done? Only 12.1%. I have a 20-year database of 30-year auctions. I could not find a smaller percentage of takedowns by primary dealers, which means investors took the bulk of the 30-year issuance. Solid A, and most likely will take a little of the selling sting out, even though the Fed and the reason selling's coming in remain very strong.
Back to you. All right, Rick, thank you so much. Important to get that in. The 10-year hovering just above 2%. John, I'll turn back to you. So this is a Fed that you think will remain pretty hawkish, tighten this year, and that's what you want to see? Yeah, we think obviously they're going to raise next week, but we are light of the bond market expectation. Our economic team is still at four rate increases this year. We're going to see how they start out. We think probably the next four they probably raise. Then see what inflation does this summer. That's the view of our economic team. We'll hold with that. But obviously, like everybody else, Kelly, we're interested to see what they say next week. Yeah, of course. Michael, what's your expectation for rate hikes at this point? And what would you add uh, for investors? Like, what are, what are the key points to be watching now as they sift through the inflation data and try to figure out if all the recession talk was really warranted? Yeah, Kelly, it's interesting. I'd say for the next few Fed meetings, call it the next three, 25 basis points per meeting is just about a given. When it gets really interesting is, call it six months from now, the Fed will look at the inflation path and say, yes, inflation's come down. Has it come down fast enough? And if so, maybe we pause for a little bit or slow down. But if not, then we have to act even more aggressively. And at this point, we don't really have a clear view in terms of how the Fed's going to react. And that's why we've been telling clients that there's a pretty decent chance the Fed goes 50 basis points at some time this year, but probably not until the second half of this year. And our advice to bond investors is pretty simple. It's the old Jim Belvano story, survive in advance. Stay out of trouble. Keep your risk low and don't try to be a hero. Not in the market. Not today. That is a good place to leave it. Guys, thank you both for your time today. Michael Schumacher and John Augustine. Quick programming note, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen will be on Closing Bell today at 4 p.m. Eastern time. We'll hear her thoughts on inflation, and it's her first TV interview since the war in Ukraine began, again today at 4 p.m. Eastern. Meantime, those talks between Russia and Ukraine have yet to result in an agreement on a ceasefire. And amid all the uncertainty, we're continuing to see these big swings in oil prices. Kayla Tausche in Washington with the latest diplomatic efforts. And Brian Sullivan has a closer look at what that means for global energy prices. Kayla, let's start with you. Kelly, despite Russia sending its highest profile negotiator yet in Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, the Kremlin is dug in in its position. That's according to the, his Ukrainian counterpart, who told reporters he would accept nothing short of surrender. Today, the Ukrainian foreign minister told CNBC's Hadley Gamble he wasn't equipped to broker anything else. Definitely, he uh, did not have sufficient amount of authority to make any deals today. He came to talk, to listen, and I very much regret because his, uh, it was, you know, more people will die because of his inability to make decisions. In a news conference, Lavrov agreed, saying he didn't come to reach a ceasefire deal and said, quote, this is a life and death battle for Russia's right to be on the political map of the world with full respect for its legitimate interests. In Poland, Vice President Kamala Harris said the NATO alliance remains ironclad, despite a disagreement over whether the U.S. would deliver the country's Soviet-era fighter jets to Ukraine. Harris announcing a $53 million tranche of humanitarian aid, with Congress greenlighting an additional $14 billion. Inside Ukraine, a presidential advisor says the destruction has topped $100 billion, and the human toll is climbing. Three killed after Ukraine, uh, after Ukraine says Russia bombed a hospital for women and babies. Windows blown out of that building, a massive crater-like hole beside it. The White House warning Russia may now use chemical and biological weapons as the war enters its third week with no end in sight. Kelly? Kayla, we remember the red lines that former administrations drew about the use of things like chemical weapons. Should we expect similar tactics from this one? 
Well, the administration has been asked multiple times if it has such a red line and perhaps uh, learning from some of those past utterances, they have not outlined one as such. Certainly, they have pulled many economic levers. Uh, in recent days, President Vladimir Putin has accused the U.S. and the West of waging an economic war against it. It's unclear what additional levers uh, the West is willing to pull if, in fact, it goes that far. Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche with the latest. Let's turn to Brian Sullivan now with oil prices volatile again today and still up 16 percent since Russia began its invasion of Ukraine. Brian, they are moderating somewhat. They are. It's kind of, Kelly, a rare calm day. I mean, gosh, I shouldn't say that because I probably just jinxed it for oil and natural gas. This after the steep rise the last few weeks and very steep fall yesterday. All right, there's a lot going on. Here's where we stand right now. The Biden administration speaking through Energy Secretary Granholm at the Sierra Week conference yesterday, kind of finally asking U.S. oil and gas companies to drill for more oil, giving them political cover with their shareholders to do it. This obviously goes against the White House's original desires, but they call this war fitting. I, I want to remind our viewers that pre-invasion this week was supposed to be the week that a number of oil and gas CEOs were going to be on Capitol Hill and being grilled over climate. The Financial Times' headline today, quote, Biden's new energy strategy, drill, baby, drill. How much has changed in a couple of weeks? But keep in mind, ramping up production in America, a very slow process. The CEOs of ConocoPhillips and Pioneer telling us that if they decided today to produce a bunch more oil, it'll be a minimum of 8 to 12 months before we start to see any kind of meaningful output. It's a slow-moving train. It's not turning on a tap. All right, so what about OPEC? Are they coming to the rescue? Some drama yesterday. The UAE ambassador said he wanted his country to start adding more oil to the global markets. The problem is that ambassador apparently didn't talk to the UAE's energy minister, who then came out and countered that the UAE would stick with OPEC's plan. They should stick to talking to each other rather than the market. Also, Iraq's oil minister saying current supply enough to meet demand. Bottom line, Kelly, looking like OPEC is not going to suddenly throw a bunch more oil barrels of oil in the market. A lot of political stuff going on behind the scenes. I'll just leave it at that. Also, keep in mind, we're always focused on supply. Why aren't ramping up 9,000 permits, whatever? Demand is important as well. Remain, demand remains strong. More Americans are driving. They're driving bigger cars. And if you can find $5 a gallon gas in California, the New York Times, basically, or San Francisco Chronicle says you're lucky. And to show you the volatility and how fast these markets can move, I want to show you this, Kelly. And if this doesn't blow your mind, I got nothing for you. This is the gas oil contract from, what is gas oil? Gas oil is basically European diesel fuel. I'm showing it to you for this reason. Yesterday at the open, gas oil surged to nearly $1,700 per contract, the highest since it was created in 1981. Then it collapsed to under $1,100. It had a 27% move from its high to its low. Its worst move since 1991, Brent crude Kelly has traded in a $33 range this week, need I remind you, just over two years ago, oil didn't even cost $33 a barrel. If you're going to play in commodities, be careful. Yeah, seriously. You know, Brian, I'm reminded um, amid all of this and as we look to OPEC for a solution about the conundrum a lot of U.S. producers are in, even if they do try to produce more of that CapEx, it will take a while. But what about the investor base who's only there because they've promised discipline? We just had Sierra uh, Week, however you say it. I'm curious what you think the takeaways are there and reminded of the Scott Sheffield quote in the Financial Times where he said, we, it would be hard enough for us to increase production. But basically he said, 
we'd want to go to our shareholders and ask for their approval. Well, yeah, I mean, he said kind of the same belt. And I think Scott's probably the most listened to guy in the oil patch, to be perfectly honest. I mean, certainly he's the only, by the way, only U.S. oil CEO I have ever seen at an OPEC meeting in Austria. So Scott's keenly involved in the geopolitical stuff. Here's the reality. I know that people think this is garbage. U.S. oil and gas companies got destroyed for a decade, right? And they did, they did it largely to themselves. I want to be clear. They overproduced when prices were high. They burned through investor capital. And investors got sick of it. But there's other things at work here. And I'll tell you what it is. Financing for new oil projects because of certain new rules and regulations in D.C. and some of these obscure agencies, very hard to get. Wall Street banks are nervous to lend money for a variety of reasons to invest in new products. You don't just go out and drill. It is exceptionally expensive to drill for a barrel of oil on a global scale. And when financing is cut off, then there you go. And need I remind you, this is an industry that... For probably for good or ill, I mean, depend on, you know, whatever your views of oil and gas are, that we've had people calling for the jailing of oil and gas CEOs. Right. They were going to be grilled on Capitol Hill this week. They've been called destroyers of the climate. Now, you can agree with that. But my point is, if you're now asking a, a group of people to help out, you got to soften. I mean, it's like here's how I described it, Kelly. It's like if, if a group of friends goes out to dinner and one guy's really rich and a couple guys are bad-mouthing the rich guy constantly, and then they expect him to pay for dinner, you, you might want to just say, hey, remember all that stuff I said about you? Uh, at least can we just forget about it because I need you to buy dinner? And that's kind of where it is. Well, it definitely comes By the way, down. I'm happy to be taken out to dinner at any time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, definitely comes down to these companies uh, and to their investor base all wanting to be on board with this. Anyway, Brian, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. We always appreciate it. Brad Sullivan. Sure. Coming up, the spike in oil prices is creating more demand for EVs, but they're constrained by supply chain issues of their own. Up next, we'll speak with one analyst about which names have the most to lose from a price spike in one of their key metals. Plus, shares of Chicago-style restaurant chain Portillo's are lower after missing estimates on the top and bottom line. We'll talk to the CEO about how they're dealing with higher costs and retaining customers. And as we head to break, here's a quick check on the Dow, down 347 points. NASDAQ, the underperformer once again, down 2%. It's all red on the screen there. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. 
Welcome back to The Exchange. The big spike in nickel prices turning out to be a headache for chip makers, whose shares are already down 20 percent since January and are on pace for their worst quarter since the financial crisis. Also a headache for the EV makers. Christina Partsinevelis joins us with the details. Christina? Well, more than two-thirds of global nickel production is used to produce stainless steel. So think about it. How many products across the world use steel from EVs to construction and electronics, including semiconductors? And yet nickel is still not trading. It's halted across the London Metal Exchange, and it's not expected to come back online until at least Friday. Nickel prices go up for political, geopolitical reasons, but they shouldn't go from $25,000 a ton just a few weeks ago to over $100,000 a ton like we saw earlier this week. That was actually the largest swing ever on the LME. The LME even decided to retroactively cancel trades as well because of these margin calls. And so much of that jump, though, does revolve around Russia. Russia is the third largest producer of nickel in 2021. Any sanctions placed on Russian nickel could cause EV manufacturing prices to jump even further, threatening adoption and decarbonization. And such a drop could bode well for another country. Battery analyst at Global Data says, quote, China already has a strong position in the battery metal supply chain and buying Russian nickel on the cheap as a result of sanctions could further strengthen its its globally competitive position. Or you could have other nickel producing states step in like Indonesia or the Philippines. But given those countries are farther away, that could mean an increase in emissions. Not pretty, not very good news for that uh, ESG push, right? And so nickel's abrupt price change could undermine the ambitious EV plans put forth by many global automakers, forcing investors to reduce their expectations for automakers' future earnings. Kelly? Christina, thank you. We'll pick it up right there. Christina parts Nevelis. Let's dig further into the nickel price impact on EV makers. One of the biggest new entrants, Rivian, is set to report tonight with the shares down 78% from their highs, down 61% this year, and down more than 20% in the past week alone. But my next guest is sticking with his buy on the stock and says shares can more than triple in price from here. Vijay Rakesh is managing director and senior semiconductor analyst at uh, Mizuho. Vijay, what's the impact or exposure to nickel in particular here? Yeah, thanks for having me on, uh, Kelly. So yeah, for uh, for EV makers especially, nickel goes into the battery component. So um, that spike in pricing obviously does not affect anything near term because a lot of the contract uh, for nickel were probably, or a lot of the buy uh, for nickel has probably happened in the last six to nine months. So, but it does impact uh, product, you know, imp- uh, pricing and production going forward. So we have seen EV makers raise pricing, uh, but uh, we also see supply side Indonesia and others talk about increasing nickel output as well. So so you are seeing, uh, you know, some supply come on from the rest of the geographies outside of Russia. But uh, it does, in cost inflation across the board, uh, does affect, you know, car pricing of cars, et cetera, in the supply chain. So. And we're looking at the EV makers. Rivian's down 9% today and Neo's down 14%, even Tesla's lower. Um, and Rivian's really struggling to kind of produce at scale. They just had to do a little bit of an about face on price hikes that would be for people who had already placed an order. What does all that tell you about their strength in this market? Yeah, I think uh, Rivian especially is in the right spot, right? I mean, they are doing SUVs and pickup trucks. If you look at uh, auto sales in the U.S., 75, 80% of auto sales in the U.S. is trucks, is pickup trucks and SUVs. So they are in the right place. If you look at the last 10 years, SUVs and trucks have grown, grown at a 9% CAGR. If you look at the broader sedan market, that's down at a 4% CAGR. So they're in the right spot. It's growing pains. I think if you, if you roll this time back, 
uh, when Tesla was uh, in the very initial stages in 2012, 2013, it took them six, nine months to get to 300, 400 units a week uh, of production on a, you know, on the sedan. So the, the SUV and pickup trucks, you can argue, uh, you know, slightly more complicated. Um, they have much more, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, much more complicated uh, production mechanisms there. So a little bit more complicated there. But uh, again, this is growing pains. Yeah. the right spot. It's a huge market, and we expect, um, you know, longer term this to do very yeah, well. So. This is not a knock at all on the cars, but I've always thought that this company went public at $100 billion and change, and that's, I think Tesla went public at, a, you know, a couple million, right? This is a an order, many orders of magnitude different. It's going to take years. I mean, it could take their entire history as a publicly traded company to grow into that valuation. Yeah, definitely. Tesla was a pioneer in the space. I mean, they had to do a lot of convincing and all kudos to them to kind of, you know, establishing a whole new paradigm, a whole new sector for the for the for the world and the, and consumers to go after. Uh, I think uh, Rivian definitely benefited from that. Uh, but, you know, what investors are looking at is longer term where this market is going, is going globally, right? It's going towards SUVs and pickup trucks, it's going towards EVs, your global mandates, your consumer awareness, all tilted towards the EV side. So they're definitely benefiting from that. Uh, now they all, they, what they have to do is execute on, the, on that roadmap. Uh, and so we think, uh, you know, part of the strategy is having the right technology, having the right products, they are there. Uh, now it's uh, getting uh, the pieces in place to start you know, shipping product out, get the deliveries uh, yeah. lined up. So, Quick final question, Vijay. What's the most important thing on the call tonight or, or in the results? Yeah, I think it will be how they feel about uh, deliveries, production schedules, um, how they feel about how they see the registration side, um, and and obviously the, the new product pipeline. Right? They first have to get the R1, R1T and the R1S out, uh, and then subsequently the next product uh, rollout after that. So the immediate focus should be on deliveries and production schedules, uh, and you know that in itself bring um, registrations back on the map. So Yeah, exactly. All right, Vijay, thanks for your time today. We'll, we'll leave it there for now. We appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Vijay Rakesh from Mizuho. Still ahead, mortgage rates back on the rise after a brief drop. We'll tell you what's behind this whiplash and the surprising stat about homeowner wealth. Plus, Ralph Lauren and PVH haven't recovered from their big drops earlier this week when Wedbush downgraded the names on concerns they have too much revenue exposure to Europe. Up next, we've got some other names exposed to the region and how you can position your portfolio to weather their volatility. As we head to break, here's a look at the Dow heat map with most of the names in the red. Apple, Intel, P&G, your worst performers. Chevron now leading the way. We're back in a moment. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs and the small dogs who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. 
Welcome back to the exchange, everybody. Market's still in the red, but we were down 466 at the lows. We're down 327 on the Dow right now. And the Nasdaq, the worst performer, down a little less than 2%. In terms of the sectors, energy is back on top today, while financials and tech are the biggest laggards. Financials down 1.5%. And get this, according to Bespoke, the average energy stock this year is up 36%, while the average tech stock down 17%. That's a spread of more than 50 percentage points. Don't see that often. Sticking with tech, the Crane Shares China Internet ETF, the K-Web, which has already been doing uh, poorly, now on pace for its worst day of the year right now. Some of the biggest laggards include JD.com, Pinduoduo, Alibaba, NetEase, and Baidu. JD.com is actually on pace for its worst day ever with a 17% decline. We'll have more on these moves next hour in Power Lunch. And from K-Web to CrowdStrike, the cyber company is surging today on the back of a beat on the top and bottom lines. They also issued upbeat guidance. The shares having their best day since 2020 with a 13% gain. Now to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel. Hi, Kelly, and here's what's happening at this hour. Ukrainian forces are preparing for more Russian attacks in the port city of Odessa. Soldiers have set up sandbag barriers around the opera house, and some important statues have been covered in sandbags to try to protect them from shelling and airstrikes. Senate Majority Leader Schumer is pushing for a quick passage of a big government spending bill, possibly as soon as tonight. The omnibus spending bill provides emergency aid to Ukraine and will also avert a shutdown of the federal government at the end of the week. And on the news tonight, million-dollar homes becoming more common across the U.S. See which cities and towns now have typical homes starting at over a million bucks. That is tonight at 7 Eastern. Also big news, pop star Grimes parenting a second baby with boyfriend and Tesla founder Elon Musk. The news came out during an interview at her home when a reporter from Vanity Fair heard the baby girl crying in another room. Grimes then acknowledged that, yes, she and Musk had the child with a surrogate. Grimes refers to the girl as Y, but that is actually just short for exodark sidereal. Kelly? And apparently there are now reports that maybe they have since broken up again, but <laughs> now they have another. I just baby. wanted to know the name. Uh, Rahel, thank you very much. Rahel Solomon with all the need-to-know details. Still ahead, the list of companies that have stopped or severely scaled back doing business in Russia. It continues to grow. Some of them are also using the power of their organizations to help Ukrainians. Our trader has a list of names she says are a good investment right now. And as we head to break, take a look at crypto lower across the board. Bitcoin falling nearly 7% after yesterday's big rally. Coinbase down about 5% as a result. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Burger King, Skechers, and Western Union, the latest in this long list of companies cutting ties with Russia. They join Apple, Starbucks, McDonald's, and others. But some are going a step further, not just stopping business actively with Russia, but working to aid those in war-torn Ukraine. And Danielle Shea of Simpler Trading is here now with a list of companies helping out like that that she says are also buys right now. Danielle, it's great to see you. And who comes to mind? So Kelly, when I'm looking at companies that are helping in Ukraine, I have a list of not only companies that are stepping up in the cybersecurity space, but also companies that are helping with transportation, wages, in addition to food and helping get supplies there to the people who desperately need it. When I'm looking at cybersecurity overall, I mean, I think that's a great place to start just because not only has this been an issue in the past and it's going to be an issue in the future. What's really unfortunate about what's happening in Ukraine is that people are taking advantage of this situation. They're taking advantage of NGOs. They're taking advantage of charities and powerful companies, both in the U.S. and worldwide, specifically Microsoft, Amazon and Cloudflare are using 
their capabilities right now to help those people in need just because they want to. So it's kind of the opposite for the, let's take the defense trade, which is a, a trade that basically people say, okay, well, I'm jumping into something that will basically do well if this situation continues to deteriorate. You're saying, look at some of the companies that could help the situation, ameliorate the situation, Tesla coming to mind. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Because see, the fact of the matter is, is that yes, you know, you can short the NASDAQ and yes, you can buy the war stocks. Those are ways that we can make money right now. But I have been hearing from investors that they just don't feel right coming in and shorting the market and and taking advantage of all the pain and suffering. And what they want to do is they want to look for ways that they can invest in companies that are actually out there helping. Tesla is a great example. And I do believe that Elon Musk really spearheaded this effort because, you know, historically, Kelly, private companies don't like to take positions um, when events like this occur because they don't want to alienate any of their customer base. But Elon Musk was one of the first CEOs that came out and said that he was going to use his companies, both SpaceX and Starlink, or sorry, SpaceX and Tesla via Starlink to help those in Ukraine. So with Starlink in particular, he came out, he said that he was going to provide Starlink terminals so that those in Ukraine could get access to communications and the internet. Now, Tesla, on the other hand, even though they don't have a presence in Ukraine in particular, they do have Tesla owners and they do have Tesla charging stations in the countries surrounding Ukraine. So he has opened up those charging stations so that not just Tesla owners, but also all EV owners can get free charging so that they're able to flee what's going on currently. These are things he didn't have to do, and it has started a movement with other private companies. So let's talk as well about a group of names more in the cybersecurity kind of space here. Uh, Cloudflare, Amazon, Microsoft. What makes these stand out to you as investments where people could, you know, have exposure to kind of them trying to do the right thing in this environment? So, you know, it is partly wanting to do the right thing, but it is also about the fact that these are strong companies. And part of the reason why they're helping is because they can, because they have the resources, because they have the talent. When you're looking at Microsoft, most people wouldn't think of it as a cybersecurity company. But um, the president right now, Brad Smith, he has started an initiative where he's working on putting $20 billion of investment over the course of the next five years into the cybersecurity space. And what's really interesting about this is he's not just investing in Microsoft. He's really trying to spearhead an effort of education. He's trying to point out the um, fact that this is a very growing industry that we need more educated people in. And he's working to use the, the platform that he has to not only educate cybersecurity people within the US, but also within Ukraine. They've published a variety of blogs to help people in Ukraine to effectively, you know, ward off cyber attacks. Yeah. And for the traders who are looking at these opportunities, you're saying there is a lot of long-term brand awareness, just like for Airbnb, another stock you mentioned uh, that could be created here by these efforts, kind of a halo effect from now on. Let's end with McDonald's, which is getting uh, a lot of investor concern right now over what the next few years are going to look like without the Russia revenue that they were previously expecting. But you think some of their efforts in Ukraine could be a boon? 
Yes. So when you look at an, a McDonald's chart, absolutely, it's been falling. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that McDonald's, just like these others, they are strong companies. Microsoft, Microsoft, Amazon, you know, uh, McDonald's, they've done really well in earnings. McDonald's in particular, they have a strong dividend. While it's falling right now, I do believe it's going to hold around the $200 price point, which still gives it a little bit more downside. But when this news wanes off, I, I believe that McDonald's is going to recover. I mean, right now what they're doing is they are assisting, you know, through their Ronald McDonald house in Poland and Ukraine, boots on the ground, you know, getting people the supplies and refugees the help that they need. And they're also continuing to pay their employees, not just in Ukraine and in Russia. And investors will look at this and they'll say, wow, you know, that's going to impact earnings. And on every single one of these, that is the truth. But they, these companies would also not be doing that if they couldn't handle it. And the sure. same goes for Airbnb. It's a great point. No, Danielle, we appreciate it. Again, with a basket of plays here for people who want to approach this differently, we appreciate your time as always. Thank you. Danielle Shea from Simpler Trading. Still ahead, companies with European sales exposure like Facebook and Booking Holdings are under pressure again today. Goldman has laid out the names to avoid and the ones to buy if exposure to Europe is a concern as the Ukraine invasion persists. We'll have more on that next. As we head to break, check out the mega caps getting hit today. Tesla down 5.5%, Apple, Nvidia, Adobe all lagging. We're back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. Both U.S. and European stocks are lower since the Ukraine invasion. But the S&P is just down fractionally, while the British market is lower by nearly 6 percent and the French index has fallen almost 9 percent. Goldman Sachs has laid out a strategy if you're worried about companies with European exposure. Seema Modi is here now with the names to buy and the ones to avoid. Seema? And it's a report that's been getting a lot of attention this morning, Kelly. Buy stocks that generate more of their sales here versus in Europe. That's the takeaway from Goldman's latest report. As more economists slash their growth outlook for Europe, the latest estimate is now 2.5% for this year compared to the 4% target earlier this year before the conflict really started. Uh, Goldman is eyeing names like Chipotle, Target, Verizon, all three are faring better this month than the S&P 500. Retail is one of the few sectors where most of their sales are made inside the U.S. So names like Ross Stores, Dollar General, and home builder D.R. Horton as well. Now, stocks with high exposure to Europe include Meta, with about 24% of sales derived in Europe, Accenture and eBay, you can see, also on the list, as is Philip Morris, which recently announced plans to exit Russia, although it has about 49% of sales in Europe and shares are down about 7% so far this month. Overall, Europe is the second largest market for S&P 500 companies, followed by Asia. So the other question, of course, over time will be whether this conflict, how it plays out, and if it'll push more multinationals to scale back their investment across Europe, that type of clarity we will likely get during the next round of earnings, Kelly. And are there any international markets where Goldman was more bullish, either as a result of this or just sort of if they're looking for other places to put that money to work? It's interesting. As the MSCI reclassifies Russia, you've been seeing more foreign inflows into Brazil, about $14 billion since December. And it, in fact, is the best performing global market so far this year, up about 10 percent. That's a lot compared to where the S&P 500 is sitting, clearly due to the rising commodity uh, prices that we've been seeing. So that's one market you're starting to see more strategists put calls out on. Uh, but but we still need clarity on how this market will really take advantage of the rise in oil prices. I'm glad you brought up Brazil because I think that was what Mark Mobius recommended that's was right, Brazil. That was yeah. on Monday. Yeah. And some of Southeast Asia as well that he thinks could, you know, be relative uh, holdouts here. 
Seema, thanks, as always. Seema Modi. Still ahead, shares of fast casual chain Portillo's falling and disappointing results. And with inflation running hot, the company's already been hiking prices. We'll talk to the CEO about cost headwinds they're facing and whether customers will continue to pay up. That's next. Welcome back, everybody. Shares of the fast casual chain Portillo's dropping today on a wider than expected loss and a revenue miss is down about eight and a half percent. Inflation not helping. According to the release, Portillo's increased menu prices three percent last quarter, one and a half percent in Q1. And it projects commodity costs to increase between 13 and 15 percent this year. So what does it all mean for the business? Joining me now in an exchange exclusive is CEO Michael Osanlu. Michael, it is great to have you back. Great to, great to talk to you again. Thank you for having me. I also pre, I think we talked maybe around the IPO, so appreciate you coming back on a day like this where I'm sure you're not thrilled about the stock market reaction. Um, but you're stuck in the middle of a quagmire. So talk to me a little bit about how you navigate this environment. You know, I think you said it perfectly well, right? Trying to, like, focus in on your stock price on a day like today in a market like today is insane. Uh, I think we worry about fundamentals, right? Fundamentally, what I want to do is we want to make sure Portillo's we're providing an amazing experience for guests. People are getting pounded with price increases everywhere. And so we still want to focus in on amazing value proposition in a great setting with great service and great food. In the longer term, in the medium and longer term, that will take care of everything, right? The the, uh, foibles that are happening right now with commodity prices and some of our labor costs, those will mitigate over time. But that consumer demand is what's really important to us and protecting it. We talked to the CEO of Dine Equity yesterday in Power Lunch. They own Applebee's and IHOP, obviously. He talked a little bit about the prices they're passing along and also the ones that they're not because he's like, look, our customer is value-minded. We see this as an opportunity to maybe hold back on some price and, and maybe gain some share. How would Portillo's be approaching this? Yeah, uh, ironically enough, very similarly. Uh, we fundamentally are pricing right now below uh, inflation. So we're just a hair below inflation. So relatively speaking to a consumer, our value proposition has gotten even stronger over the last few months. That's our intent right now, Kelly. We are not going to shrink portions, gouge people on prices. We're going to provide a great value. We're going to take share. And when the hubbub with uh, fuel prices and so on moderates, we feel like that's the right time for us to clean up our P&L. And, you know, the advantage, one of the advantages we have is we have a very strong P&L. We we uh you know we make we make plenty of money. We can protect our team members and our guests with the strength of our PL right now. Can you give us some granularity on the different food and input costs you're seeing? You know, we thought we'd be well past having this discussion by now, but then the Ukraine invasion hit and we've seen these spikes in wheat and we've seen these spikes in all sorts of different things. Um, what are you guys experiencing? Yeah, Kelly, the biggest variable that, that hit us over the last uh, few weeks is really fuel prices, right? Energy costs affect every single portion of our commodity chain, right? The, 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 the processing of the beef got more expensive. The shipping it to our restaurants got more expensive. So across the board, fuel costs have caused a lot of pain in the P&L. Um, and we're seeing spikes in certain things like our cooking oil is up 40%. Wow. Um, and this is not, it's not, a, it's not unique to us. It's just part of the industry right now. Uh, and I think right now, as we look at it, it's probably the most stark moment in time. I'm hoping that over the course of the next 30, 60 days, a lot of this should mitigate, right? We will figure out what's going to happen. We'll figure out what happens with uh, gasoline prices. Final question. And to your point, if we're still talking about this in another three months time, you know, God forbid, we know the price pressures will still be there, but hopefully not to this extent. 
But labor could definitely remain a challenge. How tight are labor yep. markets where you're looking to add people? What's that doing for wages and just you know having the team the size you need it? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think one thing that I think separates us from some of the others is I don't view labor as a cost. I view it as an investment. Those are our frontline team members who represent the brand, who give guests a great experience. And so um, two anecdotes for you. We opened a, a drive through only restaurant in Joliet, Illinois, and we're opening a, a full service restaurant in St. Petersburg, Florida. We hired 100 people, no problem in Joliet. We've hired over 120 people, no problem in St. Pete. Amazing team members, great values driven people. Uh, and I think it's because we're paying a very fair wage. We have a great benefit suite and uh, we genuinely invest in our folks and want to develop them over time. So I think for, for if you have the right value proposition for people, they will work for you. The best anecdotes, as we call them, in the, in the restaurant industry. Michael, thank you so much for sharing all the details with us. Great to have you on today. Great. Thank you for having me, Kelly. Take care. Michael Osanlu is the CEO of Portillo's. Up next... Eight, that's the percentage of American homes now valued over a million dollars. Ahead of next week's Fed meeting, we'll look at what a tandem rise in rates and prices means for the housing market right after this. Welcome back. Mortgage rates now spiking over the last few days with the March Fed meeting less than a week away. Diana Olick is here with a look at what's behind the moves. Diana? Well, Kelly, the recent drop in mortgage rates was short-lived. They popped up again this week to the highest level in nearly two years. The average on the 30-year fixed is now 4.28%, a full percentage point higher than it was a year ago, all according to Mortgage News Daily. Now, this after falling to 3.9% when the Russian invasion of Ukraine began, sending investors, of course, to the relative safety of the bond market. Mortgage rates loosely follow the yield on the 10-year Treasury. But inflation concerns and expected policy changes from the Federal Reserve overrode everything else, bonds sold off, and rates moved higher. Now, home buyers are facing the tightest, priciest market in history. But the inventory of actively listed homes did see its fifth straight week of improvement last week. There's your good news. Bad news, national list prices, which hit an all-time high in February, are still rising at double-digit annual pace. And, drumroll, 8% of homes are now valued at a million dollars, according to Redfin. That's up from 4.8% just two years ago, Kelly. Yeah, it's, we have million-dollar homes, more people making $100,000. I'm like, you know, is all this going up in real terms, or does everything just cost more dollars? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, everything does. And the big question, of course, is if you have higher mortgage rates and then you have less purchasing power, how much cold water is that going to throw on those home prices? And we've been hoping that it will a little bit. But when you have so much demand and so little supply, the prices just keep coming up. So people, if they can spend it, they will. Any sign of a turning uh, uh, turn of the corner in that inventory level yet? Well, it, we did see a little bit in the last five weeks. We have seen steady gains. Of course, we're going into the spring housing market, always the busiest season, always when the most people list, still way down from a year ago and still way down from historical levels, but maybe getting a little better. All right, Diana, thank you for now. We appreciate it. Diana Olick. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.